0: Welcome to fine-tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this week's show on Friday, August 19th, 2022. Which, this very day, Drew, Minions, The Rise of Gru, finally bowed in China. Oh, okay. Okay. This film opened stateside around July 4th, so we are seven, eight weeks out, and it did okay. If we count tickets that were sold for the midnight shows, first day it did 3.2 million in ticket sales. And uh, if we factor in where Minions Rise of Gru is right now, it's done 346 million domestic. 446 million international, so that's 793 million worldwide. Previous Minions movie, which was released back in summer of 2015, sold 63.7 million worth of tickets in China. So eh, 3.2 is off to a a decent start. But if you talk with the folks at Universal and Illuminations, they just have no clue what's going to happen here because of the whole COVID zero policy in China, where There are still millions of people who are under lockdown, and so chances are they're not going to the movies. (laughs) Isn't this like the first stateside animated film to be released in China in a couple of years?
1: Yeah. Lightyear got disqualified because of its, you know... The kiss. ...racy subject matter. There you
0: go. Okay. Okay.
1: And almost every other movie has been direct to streaming, mm. so yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. Did you ever see Minions Rise of Gru?
0: It is on my punch list, but I did get to see Luck, which we'll, we'll talk about later in today's show. That'll be a tail end of the news section. And speaking of the news, which is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience every time, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. It has been a weird animation-related news week. Do you want to talk about what's going on with HBO Max or... Yeah,
1: we can. I mean, I think that's a a very pressing issue Mm -hmm. right now.
0: Do we start with Allison stepping away from Warner's Animation Group?
1: I mean, stepping away is, is a charitable description. I think if your boss is fired, then...
0: Yeah. Chances
1: are you will also be fired, and I think that's what happened here.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think you're wrong. You know, I mean, and Allison's been in charge of Warner's Animation Group since 2017. And obviously, given what just happened with Scoob Holiday Haunt, Did you see that she's married to Tony Servan, the director of the first Scoob movie, and the writer and producer of the movie that just got shut down?
1: Yes, we we had him on the show.
0: We did. We did. I don't think I made the connection that the two of them were a couple, but I don't know if you saw the tweet last week, or excuse me, this was on Instagram, where even though the film had effectively been shelved at this point... This is what Tony put out on Instagram. It's like, what do you do when the movie's canceled, but you already paid for the stage and the musicians? You record the damn score. So it's like the film that none of us are going to see has a, a wonderful professional recorder at Warner Brothers Scores. On the other hand, Allison kind of took the high road as she headed out the door. She said, Taking this position in 2015 was a great opportunity for me. The potential of animation at Warner Brothers is second to none, and we are home to some of the most iconic IP in the history of animation. I've learned so much, and I'm proud of the movies we've been able to make in spite of the pandemic and the shifting marketplace. And speaking of the shifting marketplace... What the hell is going on at HBO Max?
1: I don't know. I mean, I've been trying to figure it out.
0: Okay. Basically
1: what happened for the long and short of it, they mm-hmm. they decided to remove 35, I think, programs from programs and movies from HBO Max mm-hmm. and I think 25 of them were animated series. And it wasn't just people were saying, "Well, is this just kid stuff?" It wasn't just kid stuff because no. close enough yeah. Which is a great mm-hmm. uh, adult uh, animated show that was on mm-hmm. HBO Max and one of really one of their kind of like hallmark shows. I feel like for the beginning of, of HBO Max's run, mm-hmm. also was removed. I just I don't understand it. Obviously, the creators did not get any kind of heads up. No, we saw a lot of outpouring on Twitter about just confusion and mm-hmm. outrage, mm-hmm. and I, I just I don't understand the thinking of it. And then today we learned that. That they pulled over 200 episodes of Sesame Street? Yeah. So anyway, there's a lot to unpack, but go, go ahead. start. Let's start unpacking this.
0: It's like, for example, with Infinity Train. It's not just taking the show off the air. It's how ridiculously thorough they are that every video on Cartoon Network's YouTube channel related to the show has been removed. The soundtrack for the show is no longer available to stream on any music platform. And even the DVDs are no longer available for purchase.
1: Yeah, and there weren't DVDs for the last couple of seasons. So, I mean, this is really some salting the earth type
0: Mm -hmm. thing. After the week that Zazzlab had last week with the drumbeat about shelving Batgirl and Scoob Holiday Haunt, for this now to be bubbling up. They're at least trying to get ahead of it. And I I guess the PR team has been reaching out to outlets to explain, no, 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 no. This isn't permanent. This is just something we're doing till the merger is complete. And then on the other side of it, a lot of your, again, your favorite series will be back on HBO Max. But have you also seen what some of the folks in the animation committee are offering up about, what this may have to do with residuals, the, the, the money that goes straight into their health care? I saw the
1: residual mm. idea bubble up. It doesn't completely hold water for me.
0: That is my concern as well. That There's a lot of information out there that doesn't quite scan or doesn't quite make sense. But are you seriously shutting this stuff down? Because it's like, well, until we finish the merger, we don't want to pay these people?
1: Right. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of things. I mean, who who would want to pitch an animated show to HBO Max oh, today? Yeah. No one. And the other thing is that I've talked to some of these people and it's like, that was the last five years of my life or whatever. You know, how do I show this to anyone? How do I go up for a new job and say, oh, I produced <sighs> this wonderful show for HBO Max mm-hmm. that you can't even watch anymore? It's incredibly defeating for them. And the idea of pulling the shows off is incredibly antithetical to the streaming model, which mm-hmm. is create content in-house and keep them on the platform forever.
0: I get that there are a lot of companies right now that are looking at streaming and looking at what they were supposed to be making versus what's actually coming in and are clearly changing their battle plans. But this is not... Nice. On the other hand... It's worth noting that, yes, for right now, a lot of this stuff has just been scrubbed and can't be found anywhere on the web, which has to be upsetting for the the creators and the folks who worked on the shows. But the other side of this, have you seen the number of kids who are in animation school right now who are looking at, like, what's going on now? And it's just, you know, the whole notion of... All the places I thought I would work on the shows I, I might be working on are gone?
1: I mean, I haven't seen that, but I I understand it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not too late to go to a trade school. <laughs> I mean, the world never
0: oh. the world
1: never cancels plumbing. Oh. You know what I mean, Jim?
0: I, 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 I get that. I get that. Uh, by the way, just because something is scrubbed and is never supposed to show up on the internet again doesn't mean that it won't. Did you see this week the number of pieces of the Chris Farley test footage for Shrek that showed up
1: online? I saw some of it. I I I retweeted one piece Mm -hmm. that I saw, Mm -hmm. and correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but was that the test with the physical set?
0: I uh, was trying to get hold of Tom Sito, who worked on that version of the the movie, to see whether or not he could confirm. Because well, what Drew's talking about here is that there were so many different versions of Shrek that were in the works. Uh, there was the the one from '96. I think you're talking about. The gimmick was that they were going to create. Physical sets that the CG characters, and again, of a storybook world, that then the CG characters would wander through. And, you know, I I guess my problem is because this is clearly a dub of a dub of a dub of a dub. It's so dark that you can't determine whether or not, okay, is this a physical set that a CG character has been dropped into? You've seen a couple of these now. What do you think of the early Shrek? Well,
1: I mean, it seems to me that it was pretty influenced by Nightmare Before Christmas, in a way, with mm-hmm. those physical sets.
0: Okay. I okay. mean,
1: I think some of these were the Propeller Heads versions, too, right, Jim? The
0: Oh, geez. <laughs> which for, was a
1: collective that were, I forgot J.J. About that. Abrams yeah, was a part of, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Again, and I, I got these stories straight from, from Tom Seydoux. He always talked about when they had Chris in the booth and how sweet he was, but they were still searching for the movie at that point. And they've been calling at least one of the clips the I Feel Good clip. Whereas Tom told me a story once where they had the character of Shrek singing Feeling Groovy in the movie. Mm. And the, the, the thing of it was that Chris didn't know where they were going to go with it. So he sang it a couple of different ways. And he said, there was this really sweet, light, you know, lovely version of Feeling Groovy that, that Chris sang in the booth one time. And it says, I don't know if that, that the Shrek would sing like that, but it was lovely, Chris.
1: Well, did you see, um, there's a new sh- uh, documentary series on Vice that just started called The Dark Side of Comedy. And the very first episode is about Chris Farley.
0: Hmm. <laughs>
1: And it's just like, oh man, yeah. We could have gotten it. We had a. We could have had a really special version with him. I think,
0: but I think so. But at least the audio that's out there now of him, I'd always heard you know, we we lost something special. And I was listening to it, and it's like, geez, I. This makes me think that maybe Mike Myers did the best version. Oh, for sure. He did his replacement dialogue for uh, for Farley in '99. Got to see the movie in early 2000 and went to Katzenberg and th- Could I re-record my dialogue with a Scottish accent? And I, I think Jeffrey once went on record to the effect of Yeah, it paid off. The movie made five hundred million dollars worldwide, and then went on to be a three point five billion dollar franchise for DreamWorks. But at that time, they had to spend $4 million to reach.
1: I've actually heard, Jim, mm. Mike Myers refute that number recently, like in really? the last few months. Okay, yes. Okay, okay. Because he's, he's been promoting his Netflix series, which is really, really cool. Did you ever watch it, Jim? The Pentaveret.
0: I saw okay, just enough of that to be intrigued. I got to clear the time because it's like eight episodes, right? And he plays eight yeah. different characters? or Yeah, it's
1: really fun. But he uh. was saying that he, he said that the number that has been bandied about mm-hmm. is, is not true, that it was much less. Okay.
0: So. Oh, and this brings me to the other thing. I don't know if you saw, I'm blanking the television outfit in Latin America that's doing this, but evidently they're doing a weekly DreamWorks animation festival. Each week they're running, and you know, sort of like how ABC will run a Pixar movie every now and then. Right. But what evidently DreamWorks has done is created this brand new piece of animation where you have characters from all of their films, from the bad guys all the way back, you know, sort of, you know, meeting in a group and sitting down to watch the movie. and, and
1: Jim, this is perfect. This is like the pre-show to that horrible Kung Fu Panda ride that you love. <laughs>
0: Well, the reason I point this out is that a friend reached out and said, Watch this. And it's like, okay, why am I watching this? It's like, because that's the brand new Shrek rig in this thing. Ooh. The Shrek film that they haven't officially announced yet. But evidently the Shrek that appears in this opening sequence is the Shrek that you'll see in that movie.
1: You need to send this to me, Jim. And also I will say that I think that there is an there are announcements that are imminent. Okay. That's right, Jim. I said announcements.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Plural. You know what I'm saying?
0: Today, out ahead of the D23 Expo, uh, being held next month at the Anaheim Convention Center, the 9th through 11th, we got our Disney Legends confirmed for this year. And, Drew, you have some thoughts? Well, no. I mean, I think it's a good group. We
1: have a couple of friends that got uh, got the uh, Mm -hmm. the awards. Mr. Don Hahn and... um, Friend of the show, Josh Gadd. Hello, Ava.
0: There we uh, go. So
1: that's very exciting. And mm-hmm. now, you know, my campaign to get Josh to bring me to Club 33 has now intensified <laughs> because he will ha- now have a lifetime membership to the parks, to all the parks around the world, as well as Club 33. Um, okay. But yeah, I think we're, <laughs> if I had to bet on it, Jim, I mm-hmm. would think there would be some kind of live music component to this award show
0: (laughs) given how
1: many of the stars of frozen are now legends this year
0: i believe you are correct yes but that said if i go over to the rap today you had some thoughts is that correct well i
1: i posted that like last week or the week before i just said here's some ideas about people who should Mm -hmm. potentially become uh disney legends i thought my list was very good Mm -hmm. jim you can you can argue with this um but none of—I was wrong—is what I'm trying to say, Jim. All—all all of my oh. my suggestions were not received with sympathetic vibrations from not the a, Walt Disney Company.
0: Not a one. I mean, not no, a one. Who did you no. have?
1: What? Uh, well, I had uh, Susan Harris, who was the creator of so, Golden yeah. Girls. Really, yeah. the creator, Jim, of the first Disney interconnected universe with. Uh, That's
0: right. That's right. Golden
1: Girls, Empty uh, Nest, and Nurses, and Golden Palace. That's right. Uh, I had Eisner on there. Obviously, I think he should Mm -hmm. get that. Uh, Joe Mm Rohde, Robert A.M. Stern, because Mm -hmm. I feel like the architectural side of the company has kind of not been uh, properly addressed. Sam Mm -hmm. Jackson, I thought, would be a great addition. Mm -hmm. Um, Lynn manuel Miranda, again, seems like a no-brainer, especially Mm -hmm. for a concert, but... Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, none of my suggestions made it in.
0: I pulled up the last couple of D23s and and their legend ceremonies, and it's always fascinating who gets picked. For example, the 2017 legends, and of course, this is when Disney is getting its Star Wars revivals up out of the ground. So Carrie Fisher gets a nod, Mark Hamill gets a nod. Or 2019, we're now dealing. What well, well, that's Endgame, you know, after Infinity Wars. So Robert right. Downey Jr. gets a nod, and John Favreau gets a nod. So it's the people who are left out that are fascinating. Like Patrick Dempsey got a nod, okay, which I get because Disenchanted is arriving soon, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. shouldn't Amy Adams have been in there if we are doing? I mean. I guess maybe Patrick Dempsey is getting it because he also appeared on Grey's Anatomy and Ellen Pompeo is getting recognized as well.
1: Yes, the legendary Ellen Pompeo. (laughs) But again, 19
0: seasons of Grey's Anatomy. That's true. That's true. That's
1: true. She worked her little butt off, I'm sure. But it, it just, it used to go, it used to be like Tyrus Wong and people that were. In the art department, I think the first inductees were the Nine Old
0: Men, right? Absolutely. I mean, hell, if you go all the way back, the first one to to get this was Fred McMurray.
1: Right. Of course. And he is an actual Disney legend.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: These just seem a little bit more synergy minded.
0: They do. They do. (laughs) No disrespect to Josh or, or Don. And remember, Robert Coltrane and Doris Hardoon. Long-time Imagineers are getting recognized. But if we go back to 2015, I mean, Andreas Deja and uh, Ivan Earle and Danny Elfman and George Lucas. I mean, even Susan Lucci. Long, long-time people at the company.
1: I was in the green room for that award ceremony, Jim. And then after, after Lucas got his award, I shook his hand and then was later told, oh, he's an incredible hypochondriac. You shouldn't have done that. <laughs>
0: All right, so he went back to the ranch and never left. Are are you happy
1: now? (laughs) Yeah, he had a Silkwood shower right after I... There
0: there you go, guys. Came at him with with industrial strength brushes. Okay, well, I get why they would be honoring Chadwick Boseman. But at the same time, the fact that they're doing it just ahead of when Black Panther Wakanda Forever arrives in theaters, it's like, just seems a tug-sulcering.
1: Yes. And also, you know, the acquisition of Fox opens up a whole new portal, too, right? Like This is true.
0: Why isn't Mel
1: Brooks getting it? Or, you know what I mean? Like, Ridley Scott. You know, it opens up a lot of avenues here, Jim.
0: These are excellent suggestions, really. Okay, somebody start writing these down. Okay, pivoting to other topics here. There's a lot of stuff that is happening just today. Like, for example, Drew, we got a... A brand new—is it? It's sort of another one of those half-season things with Cuphead. Yeah, it's
1: technically it's like season one B, but but Netflix is calling it season two.
0: Okay, okay, yeah. But that happened today, and Drew and I haven't gotten to it, and we we both love Cuphead, so we're gonna go check that out. But likewise, next week we got uh, Lost Ollie, which both of us are really looking forward to. And
1: oh, I've seen the whole thing. It's amazing.
0: Oh, Oh, yeah. Okay.
1: I talked to Shannon yesterday and I'll be talking to Peter next week. So we'll have, we'll have more to discuss. Cool. uh,
0: Okay. Yeah. And also starting next week, season three of Star Trek Lower Deck. And, Mm -hmm. and you were also mentioning we got, these are two surprise episodes of Sandman, right?
1: Yeah. They just dropped last night at the stroke of midnight, just as Sandman would. Mm -hmm. Two new episodes. And one of them is a completely animated episode. And it looks like they got an amazing cast. Did you see like David Tennant is is in that one and a whole bunch of? Uh, it,
0: yeah, I mean, it just it, it, this is the thing, this embarrassment of riches. And and while we're talking about somewhat embarrassing things, I did finally watch *Luck* and *Competent*. I realize that's not a, you know,
1: You're right, it, Jim. It is a eighty minute movie that has a beginning, middle, and end. And right. There's music on it and everything.
0: Okay, I just. <laughs> I couldn't help but look at this and this is John Lasseter and many of the people who, who you know who've come over from Pixar and other studios and it's like and John was the guy who after the torturous development of Monsters, Inc. They threaded the needle for the wonderful story there with the, the, the little girl, Boo. You look at that and you then pivot to the story of Hazel, the little girl in the foster system that her, her friend Sam, who's aged up out of the system, is trying to help. And the convoluted story, the lucky pennies, the randomizers, the ancient luck stones. and
1: I told you, Jim, there's no rhyme or reason to any of the things that happen in the luck world.
0: They have done this before.
1: Well, they being Pixar with a bunch of insane geniuses working there.
0: Okay. This was just uh, kind of upsetting. It was too busy overstuffed story.
1: I would say over-designed a story. Mm. I mean, over-designed world. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, you know, the fact that. You don't need to look where you go in the luck world. So it's mm-hmm. all these kind of Rube Goldberg mm-hmm, contraptions mm-hmm. to get around and everything. I just thought
0: it was so overwrought. It was too clever by half. But, but, but that said, I love me some Simon Pegg. Bob the Cat, great character. It looks like the, the folks who worked in, in marketing at Netflix have moved over to Skydance Animation because there's nothing. I'd really love a Bob the Cat, but that's not going to happen. But I guess I have higher hopes for Spellbound because I really want this to be another meet the Robinson situations where, you know, you walk through the door and a film is halfway, two thirds of the way done. And there's only so much you can fix. There's only so much you can change. Whereas Spellbound, I think, was... John arrived a little later. And and again, this is, you know, we got a score by Alan Menken, so that can't stink. By the way, did did you see where where Alan was over in London this past week, uh, visiting with the cast of, they've revived Beauty and the Beast for a limited engagement at the Palladium?
1: No, it really is a tale as old as time. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yes, it, it, it started in June and it's going to end on September 17th. And, and from what Alan was saying, a really impressive new take on it. And, and speaking of, of new takes on old tales, when Drew and I get back, we are going to talk about Netflix Wednesday. Uh, the trailer for that just dropped. And and Drew, you're going to share some info about an Adam's Family movie that we almost got. It's August, but that said, Halloween has already started in Florida. It was a week ago tonight that the very first Mickey's Not-So-Scary was held at the Magic Kingdom. Universal is showing a little more reserved than Disney. They're not starting Halloween Horror Nights till September 2nd.
1: You got to come out, Jim, for the Nope slash Us version of the Terror Tram. I saw
0: that. Have you ever done the Terror Tram before?
1: Oh, many times, Jim.
0: Okay. <laughs> many times. Okay, It's very
1: cool to walk through the uh, the War of the World set, get to a picture go. with Norman. There we you know, go. He's, just a, he's a mama's boy, Jim. You know, he's harmless. <laughs> we actually watched uh, Psycho 4 over the weekend, um, which, as any good theme park fan will know, was actually filmed at oh Universal Studios Florida. God.
0: You really did that? Wow. Yeah. The strangest part of Universal... <laughs> studios florida history is for the longest time when you rolled by the site there on sand lake road that was the only thing you could see you could see the psycho house and it it sat there on site for years until they really got serious about building the park and they finally flattened it
1: well they actually it was actually up during park hours because i read something about how they actually delayed production on the movie so that people who were visiting Universal Orlando could see it in production. Wow! And that could have just been like, you know, some of the flashbacks or something.
0: No, I mean, in fact, Ron Schneider, who did the very first, they didn't even call it Halloween Horror Nights at that point. This was the very first year they did a Halloween hard ticket event, it was called Fright Nights. And he talked about how they actually used the Bates Motel that they had built there at Universal Studios Florida, as a, the set that they held, I want to say the Beetlejuice musical review in you know the first oh, iteration. Interesting. Yeah, I want to say that when they began seriously constructing the park, Mother Bates' home <laughs> began to move around. It was up on a high hillside that you could see from the highway, and then they began to move it around to a different spots. So yeah, yeah, you're, you're not wrong because they was it the kid from ET. Yes, Henry, Henry Thomas. Thomas who played yeah. Norman.
1: And I think because you and I have done so many events at Universal mm-hmm. in that radio room that I feel like the actual radio room at Universal Studios Orlando is the radio set
0: oh. in the movie. Okay. Well, the, the, watch I,
1: it again, Jim, and tell me if I'm right or wrong. Uh,
0: to be honest, when I watch a movie like that, I'm never actually watching the movie. I'm I'm looking in the corners as to what can I see from Universal Florida from that period. What sort of you know creeps into the the, the sides there? But no, I'll, I'll definitely check that out. But anyway, we, we were talking about different actors playing Anthony Perkins versus Henry Thomas. Wednesday, uh, we have Jenna Ortega playing. Morticia and Gomez's daughter, who is now a teen and being sent off to Nevermore Academy. Is that right?
1: Right. It looks kind of like a Riverdale kind of approach. Okay.
0: Okay. And supposedly Christina Ricci, who played Wednesday in the 1990s, Adam Sandler films for for Paramount, uh, is, is making an appearance in the show. And Now, Tim Burton is producing... A series of eight episodes, but he's also directing four of them? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But this is not the first time that Tim Burton has been involved in in the Adams family. Can you talk a little bit about the the stop motion thing that he and what? Illumination and Universal wanted to do, right?
1: Well, I mean, that's pretty much the long and short of it. It was Mm. announced in 2010.
0: Mm -hmm. But
1: I've seen some documentation that the version that came out in 2019 was based on that original version and again this is one of those weird rights things where it, it reverted back to MGM and now MGM controls the animated version mm-hmm. and now Netflix has the live action I mean it's it's insane
0: but if you think about Edward Scissorhand and how uh, you know, Burton clearly has a love in fact also a uh, Frankenweenie, you know the, the, yeah the juxtaposition of you know the blandness of suburbs versus the weirdness <laughs> And you look at what that, at least the first Adams Family thing that, that was done for MGM was like. It's like, I can definitely see the, the Burt Ness can prints on that.
1: We need to know who directed the other four, because it would be really cool if, if Barry Sonnenfeld did the, the uh, other four. Oh,
0: I've just got a copy here at the house of Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mom.
1: Oh, I haven't read it yet. I was waiting for it to be on paperback. How how is it?
0: Uh, wonderfully talented man, but hugely neurotic. Lots of delightful behind the scenes stories about all of the various films he worked on and it just he talks about just how tortured it is it is just to show up on set to do these things. So, but really were really worth the read. So, it's a double back to you can understand why Universal would have loved Who've gotten a Tim Burton-esque take on the Addams Family? If you think about just the amount of merch that Disney sells every year for Nightmare Before Christmas,
1: have you seen the new show in Florida? The Castle show
0: projection? Yeah,
1: the Fab Five interact with Zero.
0: Yeah, yeah, Which but I,
1: it, you know, it's so fascinating to me as someone who watched those mm-hmm. coffin-shaped uh, <laughs> toys on the shelf of the Disney store sit there and Ugh. molder, you yeah. know, and like well. you know how how totally integrated that property is now to everything that Disney does around Halloween. It's really fascinating.
0: I do not know what to tell you other than the weird passage of time. And that was 93, 94? Yeah, 93. You know, it had a huge retail program that basically died. But, of course, now you pay top dollar to get your hands on any of that stuff, including all the watches they sold at Burger King. <laughs> yes. Disney... Clearly is making money off Halloween now and wants to open different avenues. See what the, the appetite is out there. Which which brings us to Disney's Frightfully Fringe collection, which, which just debuted. This merch is themed around the Skeleton Dance, which is the very first Silly Symphony. Uh, which, by the way, Disney Studios released 93 years ago yesterday. You can get yourself a skeleton dance ice bucket, a set of matching glasses. There's a table runner, a dance lantern, where you can project the skeletons in mid-dance up on your wall. You want these for your Halloween-themed party that you're having this year because there was a pandemic and you didn't get to hang out with your friends. So, But now you want to serve them up things in skeleton dance. And Disney wasn't wrong. These things are selling. In fact, if you go to Shop Disney right now, The set of skeleton glasses, the the matching set of four short glasses, $39, gone. You can't get them. I guess they're they're scrambling to try to get a reorder in out ahead of Halloween because it's like, damn, they actually bought it. I thought we'd take a a couple of minutes here to talk about the skeleton dance because it's this weird part of of Disney history. Skeleton dance kind of got going even before Steamboat Willie was locked. Walt is driving cross country. They finished working on Steamboat Willie, uh, you know, and that's the third Mickey Mouse short. And he's driving it out to New York so that they can do the synchronized sound recording, which he believes is going to be the thing that puts it over the top. But as he's driving there, Walt makes a stop in Kansas City and visits with his old friend Carl Stalling. And I want to say, Carl was the organist at the ISIS movie theater in Kansas City. And Walt would go see movies there. And the thing is that Carl would sit down at the organ in the theater and on the fly craft these amazing scores for silent films. And, you know, Walt was truly impressed with his ability. They became friendly. On this trip to New York, Walt stops in and basically pitches Carl on the idea. It's like, look, I'm taking this thing to New York. We're about to put a synchronized music track on this a cartoon with a mouse. And I was wondering, I have these two other Mickey Mouse cartoons? Because they, they made Plane Crazy and Galloping Gaucho before they made Steamboat Willie. And it's like, I think this one, Steamboat Willie's, we're going to hit. And we have to be ready. People are going to have an appetite. They're going to want to see Mickey again. And I want to get a musical score written for these two films and would you be interested in doing this. And basically what, what Walt does is he pitches Carl on the idea of becoming Disney Studios' first in-house composer. And Carl it's like, "Yeah, I could do that, but why are you limiting yourself to these these cartoons about a mouse? I mean, if you're going to do animation with music, you know, you should maybe do animation with music, build shorts around pieces of music." which is how we actually get the skeleton dance. Walt goes to New York. They record, or they make an attempt to record a synchronized soundtrack for Christine Willie* in September. First thing goes really, really bad. Walt gets nothing he can work with. He actually has to sell the car that he traveled to New York in to, to raise monies for a second recording session, but that that delivers the goods. And it's this film with this soundtrack that debuts at the Colony Theater in New York, uh, Universal's Colony Theater. In fact, the theater where Mickey got his big break was actually owned by Universal Studios. So they have a hand and in they should probably get a check. So Carl gets out to California and almost immediately starts working on the soundtracks for Galloping Gauchos and playing crazy. But at the same time, he's pitching Walton. Let's explore this music idea. And so Ub Iwerks starts working on the animation for Skeleton Dance in February of 1929. So think about it. We are less than two and a half months from the very first synchronized sound Mickey Mouse cartoon debuting at a theater. And Carl has pitched them on, we need to do a parallel series. We need to do something different. So Ub Iwerks gets the entirety of Skeleton Dance animated inside of six weeks. And then Walt sends Skeleton Dance and the fifth Mickey Mouse cartoon, the Opry House, I want to say, sends them both out to New York to get their soundtracks recorded. But now it comes back and Walt begins to walk Skeleton Dance around to, you know, first of all, he takes it to his distributor for the Mickey Mouse shorts and they're like, that's weird, that's dark, I, I don't want that. And then Walt takes, you know, that's like kind of rebuffed, takes it around to all of the other studios in town. And it's like, and the weird thing is Mickey Mouse is such a new thing at this point. It's like, yeah, kid, I'm very happy for your success. Good luck with the mouse shorts, but this thing is weird. I, I don't want anything to do with it. And so Walt has a film that nobody wants. And he's $5,000 in the hole on making this thing. So he, he makes a big bet. What he does is goes to the, the, the manager of the Carthay Circle Theater, and, and this is June of 1929 now, and says, look, tell you what, I will give this to you to put in front of your feature. You know, you don't have to pay me, just play it. So that starts, and then they get a hold of the manager of the Fox Theater in San Francisco. Same arrangement, only now it's in July. It's like, please show this short in front of your feature. You can do it for free. And just with the hope that, okay, this will get good buzz going and we might get some press. And sure enough, there's a couple of articles that talk up, you know, wow, this weird, dark, but really well animated film and well worth checking out. And so the Roxy, the manager of the Roxy in New York, hears about this, reaches out to Walt and says, okay, I heard about the free thing. Can can we do the same thing? So he puts it. In front of the feature at that theater in New York City, and of course the the New York papers pick up on it. And this is just enough publicity and just enough heat that finally Columbia Pictures is like, eh, all right, we'll take your short and we'll we'll distribute it around the country. And and Walt, while they're signing the deals, and by the way, this is going to be a whole series of movies, and you know that you know we're thinking of calling them the Silly Symphonies. And Columbia's all right, whatever, sure, okay, we'll sign. And that's 75 short subjects in total in the Silly Symphony series. Runs for less than a decade. In fact, the the very last film in the series was released in April of 39. It was The Ugly Duckling. Took home the Academy Award that year for Best Animated Short. But the sophisticated use of music... The introduction of color, got a flower and trees, the fact that you know, the very first Disney's first ex- experimentation with human characters was done in the Silly Symphony. Not to mention something like the Old Mill, where it was multi-plane cameras. All started with the Silly Symphony, and and all of that on the back of the Skeleton Dance, the weird little film that nobody wanted to run. That now you know is so popular, you can't buy the drinking glasses that have the skeletons on them.
1: Is it weird that? You know, this goes to Nightmare Before Christmas and Skeleton Dance, that they're putting out new merchandise for a 92-year-old movie. Shouldn't they have a newer Halloween thing to, like, pin this stuff on? And I know that Hocus Pocus 2 is coming, but it just seems like there's a lack of that kind of product and a demand for that type of product that is far outweighing what is actually in the library or in development at the various arms of the Walt Disney Company.
0: You're not wrong. It's like the story they tell about Jim Henson, that, you know, one of the reasons, you know, when he and Eisner sat down in 89 and were cutting the deal to bring the Muppets to the Walt Disney Company, uh, one of the things that really made Jim think this is the right thing to do is Disney has a gift when it comes to evergreens. They have the machine in place. They have the... The people, you know, who can take something that old and find a new way to get it in front of people. And we live in this age where the entertainment industry is eating its own tail.
1: It just seems
0: it seems Mm -hmm. weird, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would love to have a new thing in this space. (laughs) But but again, this is not. The Disney company, the Disney company is constantly looking backwards and it's like, hey, that Hercules movie, can we do uh, that thing we made in 97? Can, can we do that as live action? Can we do that as Broadway? I don't want to say that is a blanket statement because you and I were, were talking earlier in the week about how we both so enjoyed She-Hulk. And, and that's a new thing. That's, you know, or at least that's, you know, it, all right, it's a comic book from But it's not 19- mainline 80.
1: Disney Right, it's not like mainline Disney. That's the weird thing. Like, I know that they tried to do Disney Double Dare. You, they tried mm-hmm. to do the Shadow King or whatever that was called, the mm-hmm. the Henry Selleck But mm-hmm. it's just weird that there's not more Halloweeny stuff. I mean, you look at like that thing I was, you know, the Walt Disney World show and stuff, and it's just like, good grief! Is Nightmare Before Christmas the only thing they can hang their hat on? It's just very strange to me.
0: It is, especially when you consider when Oogie Boogie Bash at California Adventure, when the tickets for that went clean in three days, four days, there's clearly an appetite out there for this sort of darker, weirder content. And you look at when Disney has tried to do this, and I think Frank and Weenie, the stop motion thing, you almost never see that. I mean, it... it, it, I think it it shows up on Freeform once or twice in the mix when they do their the 31 Days of Halloween, but it's strange if you look at the pedigree of that project and the fact that it's tied to the you know the original Tim Burton live action short and nothing, no merch, no nothing for that, and it's weird when you don't work and you're dark and weird at Disney. You you know, you know, go into the vault right next to the space where Song of the South is about to. Got to put all of the the props and slash Mountain.
1: Yeah, it's just weird. I got to work on my pitch, Jim, for something weird. I'll go back and say, this is it. This is where, where something wicked this way comes, fell short. Here is mm-hmm. the project that mm-hmm. can fill that slot.
0: Have you ever read the history of that when, before it was a book, when Bradbury wrote it as a movie for Gene Kelly to direct?
1: No, I didn't. I mean, I knew that there were several versions of the Disney one, including one that it sounds like was kind of configured after production ended, but...
0: Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. But Bradbury has written at length about the process that finally birthed the book, and it, that started out as a movie, and that was something he was going to do with Gene Kelly, and... and I want to say they got as far as Kirk Douglas was going to play Professor Dark. There was an interesting film there to be made. Once upon a time, and
1: I kind of like the I like the finished one, even though it's very clearly kind of a half baked
0: uh, thing. Yeah, one of the very first times I went to the Disney lot to do research, the set for Something Wicked This Way Comes was still up on the back lot. And what would happen is if you went to the, the archive back then, it, at noon, you know, Dave Smith would literally chase you out. You know, It's like, go eat lunch, go away. I need a break from you sitting out here scribbling. And so for an hour, it was like I had some lunch, and I just wandered around the lot, and I ended up on the old Something Wicked This Way Comes town set and you look at the storefronts, and then you'd look through the glass into what was in the room. And one of the storefronts was filled with the sentries from costumes from the black hole. Oh, that's so cool. And then there was another storefront. Door was open. There was a crate with those styrofoam peanuts in it. And the lid was halfway off the box. And so I couldn't help myself. I walked in and I was like, well, what's in the box? And what was in the box looking up out of me, at me, out of the styrofoam peanuts was the go-motion puppet from Vermifax Pejorative from Dragon Slayer. And it was like, are
1: you kidding holy me? hell. How how you yeah. did not put that in your car, Jim?
0: I try to behave it's hard, Drew. It's very hard. So I have things that keep me on, on the straight and narrow and, and among the things that do that is of course your lovely light diffuse podcast.
1: As long as we're keeping you out of jail, Jim, you know, that's Yes. That's the main goal yes. of the show. <laughs>
0: And it's a struggle, Drew. It's a struggle. <laughs> so, talk to me. What, what is going on with, with Light Diffuse this week?
1: We uh, we just did our Maggie Two Maggie Q episodes, and we've got a ton more, ton more to go,
0: Jim. So, uh, you want to let folks know where they can find you on social media?
1: Sure, Drew Taylor, like a tailored shirt on Instagram and Twitter
0: cool cool and you can find us on twitter and instagram as jim hill media and over on facebook as jim hill media news and i guess that's going to do it for this week we'll be back soon folks take care